0: That's a pen, method. Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversation and great stories. I'm your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode four, episode four of Shut Up and Wrestle. We have a great guest lined up today who is directly related to my upcoming biography of The Sheik. Uh, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. And we'll get to him in a minute. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him and and welcome him on. He's someone that I've gotten to know over the course of writing and putting together the book. Uh, But first, I just want to say thank you for listening to the past three episodes. And I hope you enjoyed the last one, episode three. That was a very special one to me where I got to chat with uh, Keith Elliott Greenberg from um, who I've known from our both of our days working on WWE magazine and Raw magazine and places like that. I just thought Keith was an amazing guest and he was, you know, whether he realizes it, realizes it or not, he was a mentor to me back in those days. So I'm grateful to him for coming on. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, also, before we get to our guests, I want to mention kind of like we did last week where, you know, since this is an old school wrestling podcast, I like to take note, Well, I don't like to, but I mean, I feel it's necessary to take note of some of the people from um, classic wrestling who, are no longer with us. So uh, in the past week, unfortunately, we lost Mickey Henson, who most of us remember as the great referee, Mickey J, longtime referee for WCW, and also in his later years of his career was uh, a referee for WWE after they bought WCW. Um, Also got his start in his very early days refereeing in the dying days of championship wrestling from Florida. So one of the great wrestling referees of the past, uh, Mickey J. Uh, let's let's all take a minute to remember him um also want to talk about uh some of the appearances that i've made in the past week it's kind of been a big week and i've been talking a lot about the book uh on on some other podcasts so i want to direct you to them if you haven't checked them out already uh first was john mcadams uh, uh stick to wrestling podcast which um is a really cool podcast by a tape trading legend, as far as I'm concerned, and a fellow member of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. So you wanna check that out. And of course, I'm eternally grateful to Mr. Jim Cornette and Mr. Brian Last, who uh, were kind enough to have me on the Jim Cornette experience uh, last week. And not only have me on, but but talk for a good ninety minutes about my book, which is just 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 so gratifying to talk not only about the book, but to talk about to talk with someone who is so knowledgeable and can do the deep dives on wrestling history uh, that just made it really easy. So if you haven't checked that out, I, I urge you to check it out. Um, I really think it went very well. And uh, of course, you could find all those great podcasts, part of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. I want to mention that there is a new issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated out this week, which has some of my columns in it. That would be the May issue. Right now, it's in digital form only, but it is available at getpwi.com. The um, the print edition will be out on March 8th. This is a really interesting issue because you'll see that it has kind of an internationally flavored cover. We've got Kazuchika Okada um, as the cover of the magazine, which I may be wrong here and people will correct me if I am, but I believe this is the first time um, that I'm aware of that PWI or maybe any American wrestling magazine has had a talent from outside the world of American wrestling as their main person on their cover. So I think that's a really big deal. I've got two columns in there. One is the lockup in which I talk about the importance of the role of wrestling managers. The other column is The Way It Was, which is my old school vintage column in PWI. And this month in The Way It Was in the May issue I'm talking about one of my favorite periods in wrestling history, which is early 90s WCW. I have a real soft spot for that period in WCW, and I got to write about it and put some really cool pictures in there for that column. So you're going to want to check those out. Again, that's in the May issue of PWI, digital on sale now, uh, print on sale uh, March 8th, and you can get it at getpwi.com. Now, Uh, Speaking of the chic book, which I've been talking about, Blood and Fire, um, the individual that I have as my guest today is somebody that I got to know through the process of working on this book, and I I knew that I would not be able to even do the book the right way without his involvement. Um, His name is Dave Brzezinski. A lot of people know him as Supermouth Dave Drayson. He was the last manager of the chic and also a longtime friend and confidant and worked for his organization, Big Time Wrestling, in his early years uh, before he was a wrestling manager and uh, also had been a photographer as well. So he sort of led a a very uh, incredible life as a, a wrestling fan, first and foremost, and then becoming a lot more than that, as you'll see in the interview, just the way that he got to experience Uh, parts of the heydays of territorial wrestling. So a really fascinating guy. And um, I really, really hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with him. And without further ado, I'm going to take you to it right now. So right now, I would like to welcome to the podcast. and I'm very excited to have him, somebody that I've gotten to know very well over the course of writing my biography of The Sheik, Blood and Fire. He's the last manager of the Sheik. He was uh, really uh, involved behind the scenes in, in Detroit wrestling and big time wrestling. And I like to call him the dean of Detroit wrestling and hopefully that'll stick. But uh, he currently also is doing the big time memories YouTube series with Terry Sullivan. For people that have seen that, if you haven't, we're going to talk about it a little bit. But I am talking about uh, the man sometimes known as Supermouth. Dave Drayson, known to his close friends and family
1: as Dave Brzezinski. Dave, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on, Brian. I wish you wouldn't have been calling me <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning to do this podcast, but <laughs> hey, it's you, you're a good friend. I'll let it slide this time only. Well, you know, it's
0: my my busy schedule of 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 writing constantly about wrestling and and it doesn't really, um, give me a lot of free time and raising a four-year-old son. So, you know, that's, that's the way it is. Oh, you know what I forgot to mention too, uh, in addition to everything else, uh, wine connoisseur, Dave Brzezinski. So,
1: well, I noticed that, uh, you know, even though people can't see us, but we're talking to each other over a, uh, video conference and, uh, He's got his Pinot Noir and I've got my Pinot Noir and, you know, we're going to have some fun just chit-chatting back and forth,
0: I hope. Yeah, you know, I figure sometimes it helps to kind of lubricate the memories a little bit <laughs> and and, uh, <laughs> and get people talking. So, you know, um, I, I wanted to mention, too, that um, I mentioned the book earlier. So This is kind of how we got to know each other. So the biography I'm writing, or actually I completed, and I'm, I'm working on putting some of the finishing touches on uh, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original Sheik. That's kind of how we cross paths. Um, so, I mean, if people want to know just a little bit in a nutshell, I know it's kind of hard to encapsulate it, but um, what, what was your involvement in the Sheik's organization in the 70s?
1: Well, first of all, you know, you know, starting in the, you know, early to mid 60s, you know, I was just a fan, you know, and, you know, became, you know, interested in photography and travel and just through my photography and meeting friends and, you know, got into writing for Wrestling Review and Ring Wrestling and Wrestling Monthly and all the after magazines and, you know, all of that cumulated you know, with me, you know, uh, becoming the first, uh, you know, photographer for, you know, big time wrestling, you know, uh, good friend, Wilson Lindsay, who I idolized, you know, when I was a fan at Cobo Arena, he was up at the ring taking pictures. And I was sitting in my front row seat, you know, with my brownie camera, just wishing I could be him. And, you know, uh, just you know, with my ties in with, you know, the wrestling magazines and, you know, other contacts I had knowing a lot of the wrestlers, you know, uh, I became the photographer for big time wrestling.
0: And, uh, now you mentioned Wilson Lindsay, who, uh, also he, he was a, he was the big time wrestling photographer, even going back to the days of, of, uh, Jim Barnett and, and Johnny Doyle before the chic took over. And I, I talked to him, in the process of writing the book. And he, as you probably know, he had the incredible story of actually being in the room. So apparently he was a teenage kid and he was kind of like taken under the wing of Johnny Doyle and his wife. And so he would hang out a lot at their condo in Detroit. And he was in the room when Johnny Doyle signed over the 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 detroit territory big time wrestling whatever you want to call it signed it over to the chic and and his wife joyce he was actually in the room
1: exactly he was there uh you know the saw the fifty thousand dollar check that uh, changed hands and you know wilson you know became the photographer for big time wrestling got paid to do so uh, but left because of Captain Ed, Eddie Farhad Jr. You know, he was just so mean to him. And yeah. Wilson said, I don't need this aggravation and went on to bigger and better things.
0: Yeah, that was something that I, I remember from the conversation we had, how he just said um, it just kind of wasn't as much fun anymore. When, when the Farhats took over, it became more serious. It wasn't, he, he wasn't having as much fun. It was just uh, the environment backstage but in the locker room and everything was just very very different from what it had been just before that
1: yeah i think it was more because in the once the sheet took over it was a lot of kayfabe in the dressing room it was mm. a little bit more strict and you know he wasn't given the access that he was used to you know but you know, over time, uh, you know, I really thank him and I reconnected with him many years later. And to this day, we still keep in contact. And luckily, I became, you know, the Wilson Lindsay of my day.
0: Yeah. And and actually, in, in those years, you're talking about like, what's the time frame you're talking about when you were actually um, photographing for them? What's the what years?
1: 1971 through 1975 right. uh, and the reason you know you know i had you know been lucky enough to shoot at a uh, number of big time wrestling shows in like dayton ohio cincinnati ohio uh just through my contacts with the promoter there, are less ruffin so i was up at the ring and you know the Sheik would see me you know i'm photographing and it it came to when the bruiser dick the bruiser came in and was running you know opposition to the Sheik in detroit and it's like you know the very first show that he did the Sheik uh, was sent a lot of talent from uh you know all the nwa promoters around the country And I mean, it was a super show at Kobo. And I just had to photograph this. It was like history in the making. And I took out my wrestling review press card. I asked one of the guards, the star security guards who I knew, and he took my card back to Joyce Farhat um, in the dressing room or her little office just off the dressing room. And she came out and, you know, I explained to her who I was and could I photograph the show? And she let all the security know that, hey, this kid's okay to shoot up at the ring. And from that day on, I became their photographer. And, you know, not only a Kobo, but I made trips, you know, to all the you know shows in Ohio, Ontario, throughout Michigan. Uh, my photographs were published in, you know, uh, the Body Press program. Uh, Then I started writing stories for the Body Press program. And, you know, I just had a great time as a kid, you know, being able to do this and being amongst the greatest talent in wrestling history and being able to photograph them and, you know, get posed pictures in the dressing room and travel with them. Uh, You know, for a kid, you know, at my age, you know, under 18, I mean, I was having the time of my life.
0: That's incredible to me. I, I always compare, you know, the, those kind of situations to almost like the, the movie Almost Famous, if you've ever seen that, about, you know, the kid who becomes a, a writer for Rolling Stone, you know, when he's like not even barely out of high school. And he, and all of a sudden he's on the road with all these rock stars and things. And he's in this in this world. Um, it, it, it always kind of reminded me of that, just. um getting that kind of exposure. I mean, I got involved with WWE a, a little bit after that. I mean, I was in my 20s, but it still always felt like, you know, you're you're allowed into this world and it's almost like an honor that they admit you into this world, and sometimes you don't always feel like you belong there. You're going like, "Well, I'm not I'm not really I'm not a wrestler or anything." And I There were times where I would almost feel like I was an imposter, like I like I shouldn't be there. You know, I was seeing and hearing things that I shouldn't be seeing and hearing.
1: Well, you hit the nail right on the head. That's one of my favorite movies. And every time I watch it, I relate, you know, his life and, you know, for the writing for Rolling Stone to mine for writing for the body press and, you know, traveling with the guys and, you know, you know, trying to get accepted into this kayfabe world. You know, and the same thing happens in the rock and roll world, too. Uh, and, you know, mine was in wrestling and his was in the rock and roll. And, you know, like you said, you know, that was, you know, I relate to that movie, you know, just like, you know, beyond belief. So you
0: got, you know, brought into this world. And not only that, but we're talking about, you know, for those who know about the Sheik and we're talking about the original Sheik here, we want to clarify that, you know, especially with. Younger fans and younger listeners, we're not talking about that other guy with the handlebar mustache, right? We're, t- we're talking about the real original chic, um, the guy who, you know, main evented all over the world and was one of the top drawing and, and, and heat getting heels, who ever lived. But he was somebody who, as we all know, those who know about him was so incredibly guarded with his persona and, and, and not wanting people to know what he was really like and that kind of thing. So what was it like, ha- you know, being around him and trying to win his trust and 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 get him to let his guard down? I mean, to what degree did he ever even do that with around you in those in those early years? I'm not talking about when you were managing him later, but in those early years.
1: Well, first and foremost, to try to get accepted into the you know world of professional wrestling, you know, as a young person, you know, that's one thing to get accepted into the Sheik's world was a whole different category uh you know when I first met him formally uh you know he kayfayed me you know wouldn't talk in front of me you know sort of gestured to you know his wife Joyce but over time uh you know he asked me to come in because after a match he was so bloodied up and it's like you know he just motioned me to come into his dressing room, uh, private dressing room, and photograph him. And you know when I was done, you know he would turn to me and say thanks. And it's mm-hmm. like wow, the sheik said to me thanks. Right. And then over time, you know traveling and being at other shows, you know you walked, you know on you know eggshells with him because you never know. I mean he was just a scary person, you know, the, the person who could just walk out to a ring and just make a gesture to somebody and make them, you know, near crap their pants and jump three rows behind themselves, you know, just by a, you know, a little gesture, gesture that he did, you know, and that was the same thing when you were around him, you know, you didn't want to say the wrong thing, you didn't want to do the wrong thing, uh, and to gain his trust, and, you know, luckily, you know, I was, you know, very fortunate that, you know, he took to me, he liked me, you know, brought me into his world and respected me, uh, you know, treated me like a normal human being as opposed to, you know, I've seen, you know, him be very nasty to other people, um, you know, but, you know, that was, you know, being in the world of the Sheik, I was very fortunate.
0: Yeah. I mean, was there ever was there a moment that you remember where it's like all you know what I'm trying to say here? Was was there ever any one moment where he he suddenly kind of put his guard down, like where he had decided, okay, I can be myself in front of you? Did that ever happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, it happened a little bit here and there, bits and pieces, you know, over the years. But the one I really remember is uh, the night before Eddie Farhad Jr.'s wedding when they had the, oh, I forget what the women do, you know, it's like, you know, and like a bachelorette, the bachelorette party. But it wasn't really like they are now with strippers and all that kind of stuff. This was more, you know, cake and punch and, you know, all the women getting together. Uh, Sheik and I were there. And I mean, we were the only two males there, and we were off to the side and we just talked. And, you know, nothing, he didn't ask me anything about wrestling at all. He asked about my life. Where did I live? You know, I lived on the east side of Detroit. And, you know, we got to talking. You know, the only wrestling stuff that we really talked about was my traveling, going to, Uh, LA and Georgia and St. Louis and Texas and New York, you know, as a young kid, you know, I would, you know, he was just astounded that I went to all these territories. And this was when I was like 13, 14 years old. And I would tell my parents that, you know, I was off of school on Friday, which I really wasn't. And I was going to go spend the weekend, you know, over a friend's house down the street and you know, we're gonna be playing baseball and games and stuff and I'm gonna spend the night there. Well, little did they know, I would you know pack a bag and I would take a bus to downtown Detroit to the Sheridan Cadillac Hotel. And then I took the airport bus from the Sheridan Cadillac and went to the Detroit Metro Airport where I would buy a standby ticket and go to all these cities And I had friends there, you know, who would pick me up from the airport, stay with them over the weekend, we'd go to a wrestling show or two. And on a Sunday I'd fly back home, you know, do the same bus route back home. And my parents never knew that I had ever left the city, you know, but I was able to photograph at all these wrestling shows interview some of the, you know, new guys that I had never met before and put stories together for Wrestling Review and all the other magazines. And that's how, as a kid, I made my money.
0: And that's the thing that, you know, we were talking about this a little earlier that I think sometimes fans who are younger and and by younger, I don't even necessarily mean young. I just mean even even fans that are my age or even a little older who, who it's hard, I think, to explain and to understand that this was a time when obviously we know there, there's no internet, there's no computers, but I mean there was there really was this kind of network, and I feel like you were a part of it of 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 hardcore kind of wrestling fans who kept in touch with each other all across the country, traded results, traded information, you know, and 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 I know, like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, it's it's people like you, it's people like Tom Burke. And I think like Dave Meltzer in those days when he was very, very young and John Arezzi and people like that who who are like this, this it, it's kind of like a culture that just doesn't exist anymore of fans who who kind of reached out to each other all across the country.
1: Well, not only across the country, across the world. Yeah. I mean, I would correspond with guys in Japan and Australia, you know, Europe, uh, Canada, uh, you know, and all credit has to be given to a man who doesn't get any credit at all for it for really bringing fans promoter and you know wrestlers together and that would be Don Wilson uh, He started the WFIA the wrestling fans International Association. And, you know, we would have yearly conventions and, you know, like a three-day weekend where fans from all across the country and all across the world would get together, talk wrestling and, you know, exchange photographs and, you know, programs and, you know, like you said, that network of people that you really corresponded with snail mail. I mean, you'd Hmm. write letters, you know, or type letters, which all those letters from all those people, I still have in my boxes in my archives in the basement and it's so funny And you know sometimes you know I'll go down there because somebody's looking for a magazine or a program and I'll go down there and I'll run across one of these letters and I'll start reading you know a letter that I got from like you said Tom Burke or John Arezzi or correspondence from you know people all across the world and what we were talking about at that time like you know uh dory funk jr winning the nwa championship or bruno sammartino losing to ivan koloff or the time that uh, i think it was harley race lost the title to giant baba in japan where nobody in the united states was supposed to know about that you know the title change which is never in any of the record books you know, uh, from the NWA, but, you know, there is, you know, historic proof that Baba did beat, you know, Harley for the title, you know, over like a week or two period.
0: Yeah, because I know, you know, nowadays when you see, whenever you see, and because of the internet and everything too, whenever you see kind of like title histories for the NWA title, they do include things like the Baba title switches and stuff. But at the time they sort of acted like, I don't even think that they acknowledged uh, when Tommy Rich won it out, outside of outside of that area in Georgia. Or if you if you'd heard about it, because they sort of acted like Harley Race was the champion, pretty much uninterrupted that that entire time from when he won it from Terry Funk all the way to, you know, when he lost it to Dusty Rhodes in 81. They they didn't really acknowledge that he had lost it and won it back probably about three times in between there.
1: Well, same thing with Buddy Rogers. You know, there's, you know, historical facts that Edward Carpentier beat uh, Buddy Rogers for the title, Bobo Brazil beating, you know, Buddy Rogers for the title. But it's, you know, it's all, you know, what they say, phantom now. (laughs) And, you know, it's not recognized.
0: The the Bobo Brazil one's interesting to me because I was reading, I think it was Tim Hornbaker's book that he just did about Buddy Rogers. Have you seen that book? I've seen it, but I haven't read it yet. It's really terrific. But he mentions in there basically that the thing with Bobo Brazil, the reason that they erased it is that it was not authorized to happen. So I I think it was on a on a Vince McMahon show, if I'm remembering right. I could be wrong on that, where they went ahead and they did a title change and the NWA had not given them permission to do it and and when they found out they said you can't do that you know and they were just doing it to pop some houses and stuff and they said you just you just can't do that and they kind of quietly gave it back to Buddy and just pretended like it never happened
1: and i think that's how the WWF was formed because uh, Vince McMahon senior was a member of the NWA originally and i think that had a lot of rift uh, to do with why he broke away in a way, formed his own uh, association, even though he was still tight with Sam Muchnick in the NWA. But that's how the WWWF was formed. Yeah, it was. It was basically kind of a big part of it
0: was fighting over Buddy Rogers. I mean, Vince and and Toots Mont they sort of had Buddy as their guy, and they weren't really willing to share him as much with the other promoters the way that they would have been expected to so like if you look at when when buddy rogers is champion he's not traveling as much as the other nwa world champions were he's kind of staying not entirely in the northeast but definitely a lot more than other places and you had promoters out in texas and everywhere else in the midwest going hey we w- when are we getting dates on the champion and so they 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 basically decided they had to get the belt off of him and Vince and, and Senior and, and Toots were, were kind of like, well, you can take the belt off of him, but he's still going to be our champion. And they and they built this whole new group around him.
1: Yeah, I'm very fortunate that you know there wasn't many printed, but um for the other promoters in other territories, Vince Sr. would send out a press kit on Buddy Rogers you know, if they wanted him to come into their territory. So it included photographs and contacts and things like that. And Vince Sr., you know, one of the two times that I ever met him, he gave me one of those press kits on Buddy Rogers because he knew I was a big fan of his.
0: Wow, that's great. I never knew that you met him. That's really interesting. Uh, What, I mean, this is a a really uh, simplistic question, but what was he like? He seems like such a fascinating figure especially these days where you know the whole wrestling business now is basically dominated by his son (laughs) casting a shadow over everything so uh, Vince Sr. is sort of like this this kind of um, I don't know almost godlike figure today for fans what was he actually like?
1: I mean the only you know few times that I met him I mean he was very nice to me and I was only like a 13, 14, maybe 15, you know, the second time I met him, you know, I was a young kid and, you know, he respected I was a photographer and I'm sure he kayfabed me. Uh, but, um, you know, only because I met him the first time because when I was writing for wrestling review, um, God, I'm going to have to think of who was the editor at that time. Um, the name is escaping me, but he said, Hey, you know, anytime you're in New York, you know, come on, you know, stop by the office. Was so it, one time, uh, was, was it Norm Keitzer? No, this is pre Norm Keitzer and Jim Melby. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll Jim, think of it. Yeah. Just, uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, I flew to New York and then I, well, I'm going to go to the wrestling review, you know, office. So I'll never forget, you know, I went to their office in Manhattan and the secretary, I walk in, I said, yeah, I'm Dave Brzezinski, I'm here to see Lou Eskin. Lou wow, Eskin okay. was the editor. And she says, uh, do you have an appointment? I go, no, he said that anytime I'm in New York, mm-hmm. to, you know, come on over. So anyway, she says, uh, Lou, you know, she, you know, had the uh teleconference thing says Lou uh, there's a Dave Brzezinski here and it's like immediately he says oh yeah send him on in so I go on in and I walk in and he looks at me like you know a deer in the headlights Is like Jesus Pete's this Dave Brzezinski he's a kid <laughs> you know he's thinking I'm some you know 20, 30, 40 year old person that's writing for his magazine. And he was nice to me and stuff. And he gave me uh, press passes to go to the garden that night for a, you know, uh, show. And he introduced me to Vince Sr. that night.
0: What an adventure. God, I, I can't even imagine being that age and getting around like this and having that, this experience. It really is something that w- just wouldn't even be possible today. It, it really wouldn't be possible at all. But I also want to mention, too, for for people that may not know, because I think this is important, because when we think about wrestling magazines today, too, we tend to think a lot about the Stanley Weston magazines. You know, everybody knows Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and there was Inside Wrestling and The Wrestler. But but really, in this era that you're talking about, kind of like the 60s and 70s, and especially the earlier part of the 70s, Wrestling Review, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was really the top wrestling magazine, wasn't it?
1: It was probably the best-selling, you know, wrestling magazine. Uh, but I think, you know, for the hardcore wrestling fans and historians, ring wrestling mm. had the truer, uh, better stories. Uh, I'm not necessarily the photographs, but, you know, oh boy, they were pretty equal, but wrestling review, was probably the top selling more than ring wrestling was, but both magazines were, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, you had to have them every month.
0: Yeah. So I guess, yeah. Right. Wrestling review would have been, you know, the one that was maybe a little bit better known, but, and I, and I know even from, um, you know, I have a lot of them collected and I've looked through them all the time and it, I'm talking about the ring wrestling. I mean, that was a really quality, publication i mean they and i talked to tom burke about it too because i guess he was involved with it for a while that magazine the thing i noticed about them is they really 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 tried and i guess because they have the name the ring attached to it like the boxing magazine they really tried to treat it like a sport in a a way that none of the other magazines did they didn't get involved in any of the sensationalism and the kind of lurid stories they really tried to treat wrestling like boxing
1: Yeah, they made it a legitimate sport. I mean, uh, Wrestling Review, Wrestling Monthly, and Ring Wrestling, they treated it as a sport as opposed to what we all call the after mags, which – Nobody wrote for, I mean, they wouldn't accept any stories from me or any of the friends that I knew. I think uh, Bill Apter sat behind a typewriter and, you know, fictitiously did all these sensationalism stories, you know, and the only thing that he did to create these stories was, you know, get photographs from like myself and, you know, uh, Gene Gordon, you know, in uh, Charlotte, and you know, the guys out in L.A. And, you know, from whatever territory, he'd get these photographs and just, you know, make up, you know, stories, you know, to go with, you know, the photographs.
0: Right. Just to kind of make up a story to go with, with good pictures. And I got to tell you when, when I was writing for WWE magazine and w, or WWF magazine too, I mean, that magazine was complete fiction. I mean, we, it, I mean, to, we treated it like base. I mean, we had fun with it to us. It was creative writing. Like we were getting to let out our, are, are writing kind of like frustrations and, and be like these frustrated short story writers. That's so basically we were just kind of having fun with that stuff. But, but the after magazines were a big inspiration for us there because you know they would come up with just those outrageous kind of uh, stories that had no grounding in reality. I mean they would they would make up their own angles that didn't even have anything to do with what was happening on television.
1: Exactly. But you know, but let's get back to big time wrestling. We're talking yeah. Detroit here.
0: Yeah, let's do that. And actually, I, I was ready to jump back into that. And the reason is that I'd really be remiss if I got to talk to you like this and didn't bring up the fact that I think people should know this, that you grew up as a small kid. Right. You were the neighbor of a name i'm going to mention leaping larry shane and for people that that don't know uh and if it's before your time leaping larry shane was at one time one of the top babyface stars in wrestling and probably the 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 most popular wrestler in the detroit area for a little while there and you were kind of like what did you you, he rented did he rent from your parents is that how it worked
1: yeah uh, my parents owned a two-story home on the east side of detroit um, our address was 8294 Olympia and the upstairs, uh, address was 8292. And that's where leaping Larry Shane and his wife. And over time, you know, two children lived, you know, upstairs from us. And that's how I, you know, you know, that was my incarnation into the world of professional wrestling here. I've got a, the most popular wrestler living upstairs for me. And, you know, I would watch him on TV on Saturday mornings. And, you know, it's like, wow, this guy's a TV star. And I'd see him and we'd talk and we'd, you know, times when he's home playing with his kids and I'd be out front, you know, where, you know, we, you know, I gave him one of my baseball mitts and me and him would, you know, toss baseball back, you know, and forth on the sidewalk. And, you know, every so often, you know, one of the neighborhood kids would come up and ask for his autograph. And, you know, he was very kind to them and, you know, supportive and, you know, would do so. And, you know, here I've got, you know, like, you know, a star, you know, living, you know, upstairs. me, And, you know, he took me in and he took me to my very first show, which was a um, show at WXYZ TV, Channel 7 in Detroit, a TV taping, you know, before his match at the Olympia. And, you know, from that point on, I was hooked. You know, I just couldn't miss a show. I couldn't miss a TV show. I didn't miss a Kobo show. Uh, wrestling you know as a very young child was my life and
0: he and the Sheik were you know even though obviously they feuded in the ring they were actually very close friends weren't they
1: yeah uh here in detroit and you know especially down in texas you know right. they both uh worked down there you know for the funks at that time both big stars larry was you know one of the top uh, baby faces there the Sheik was a up-and-coming, you know, dastardly heel, and they feuded down there, and, you know, they brought that, you know, heat and, you know, friendship and everything back up here in Detroit. Unfortunately, you know, before the Sheik bought the big-time wrestling territory, you know, uh, Larry was killed in an auto accident on his way home from a show.
0: Yeah, and, 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 you know, I had heard that in some of the research that I was doing for the book, I had heard that a lot of people speculate that the Sheik had kind of been hoping when he bought the company that he could set, obviously he was going to set himself up as the top heel, but he was really hoping that Larry was going to be the top face and they would sort of, you know, their headline feud in a way almost like what wound up becoming the Sheik versus Bobo Brazil originally in his mind he was thinking it it would be the Sheik versus larry shane
1: yeah well what could have been you know uh you know i think about that often you know if larry shane was the top baby face you know here i mean on, you know the the guys that he could have feuded with not only the chic but you know bulldog brower and killer carl cox uh, and so many of those other great heels that uh, were in the territory when the Sheik bought it, uh, it, it could have just been incredible.
0: And let's talk about that a little bit, too, because I, you know, I did not grow up in, the, in that area, nor did I grow up in that time period. But I've and people know because I'm, I've done this book, I've always been fascinated with Detroit wrestling from that era and specifically Kobo Arena. And I think I've told you the story about how I had the one experience of being, you know, near Kobo Arena. I didn't even go inside when I was working for WWE and they were doing a show at Joe Lewis Arena and I was there to cover it. And I'm walking along, walking through the parking lot and I look over to my right and I go, oh, my God, that's Kobo Arena. I can't believe it. I've got it. And I went over just to peek inside because it just felt to me like hallowed ground, like that to me is on, it's right up there, you know, on the list with Madison Square Garden, the Olympic Auditorium, the Kiel, places like that. Uh, what was it like really being there for those really super stacked Kobo shows that they would have?
1: Oh, God, uh, it, it, undescribable. you know, the talent that, you know, r- you know, back then you couldn't really appreciate Uh, all the talent that was on those shows, you know, now when I would post something online with, you know, one of the lineups from the body press program, you know, it's like, it's a who's who of wrestling. And everybody goes, you know, they'll look at that and they'll go, wow, I wish I could have seen that card. What a great card. But, you know, back then, You know, some of the preliminary matches, it's like, you know, a Prince Pullens or a Bobby Shane or, you know, uh, Bill Terry, who became, you know, Kurt Von Hess, uh, you know, Johnny Powers, uh, you know, so many of these other guys that were on preliminary matches, you know, who became superstars in the world of professional wrestling. You know, you look at those Kobo cards and, you know, cards that were at, at the Olympia you know, even the Sheik, I remember, you know, in like 1962, 1963, you know, the Sheik was like, you know, a preliminary bout, you know, Mm -hmm. the second or third bout on the card, you know, could you imagine that now, you know, uh, they were very exciting, you know, uh, you know, the fans, you know, were loud and receptive, they they cheered the baby faces, they jeered the heels, you know, and this was at a time when, you know, that's what fans did. Not like today, you know, today's wrestler, you don't know if they're a baby face, a heel, you know, what they are, you know, and nowadays people, you know, uh, cheer for the, you know, uh, heels and the baby faces, you know, they sit on their hands. But back then, you know, uh, I, I say that's the difference of wrestling from that era till today is that almost every wrestler was a character. You had the Cowboys, you had the Indians, you had the Germans, you had the Japs, you had the, you know, every, you know, the mass guys, uh, the deformed guys, the oddities, you know, everybody was a character. Uh, and that's, you know, everybody is just, you know, today's wrestling, you know, you don't have that, you know, I, I say that, you know, it's hard for, you know, the hardcore wrestling fans these days to get behind, you know, anybody, you know, in the world of wrestling.
0: Well, I know that, and I mentioned this in the book too, how I feel that big time wrestling in Detroit was really kind of ahead of ahead of the curve in a way in that the sheet really understood that wrestling is show business you know and and he really leaned into that like you said they wanted to have characters they wanted to have real good guys and bad guys to have these compelling conflicts that people would get into and you know it, it almost sounds taken for granted now but you know every territory back then and the way they presented wrestling it was like they really kind of trained the fans to accept what the kind of wrestling that they were presenting would be what fans knew so depending on where you lived, you, you would sometimes get a different kind of brand of wrestling you know like mushnik in st louis was doing something very <laughs> very different from what the Sheik was doing in detroit that's for sure and Vince was doing something different in the garden. And, and, you know, if you went to, if you went to the Crockett territory where in those early days it was all tag teams, they would be something different depending on where you went. But big time wrestling was like you said, just so colorful and so intense. And, and I want to say, and maybe I'm wrong, but maybe a, a little more violent than you'd usually find in some of the other places. Would, would, would that be true?
1: Uh maybe in the early to mid seventies, you know, the violence really, you know, prevailed, but, you know, back in the sixties, you know, up to like, say 70, 71, uh, it was almost like a much Nick territory where, you know, wrestling, you know, pure wrestling, you know, was its form. And you had a lot of guys in the territory who can really work. I mean, uh, it was the starting place for, you know, Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch, uh, you know, how can you compare, you know, the, you know, the chic letting them develop here and but you had the older guys like Johnny Valentine and Whipper Watson, Lou Fez, uh, Bulldog Brower, um You know, Baron Von Roschke, he, you know, honed his craft here early on. Uh, It's just a who's who of what the sheik brought in here. And he let those guys develop their characters uh, on their own. I mean, he would, you know, probably determine, you know, who's going over all the time. But you know, uh, I mean, when he brought in Pampero Furpo, uh, you know, hated heel. People just hated him. You know, right off the bat, he was like, you know, took over the number two hated spot behind the Sheik. Uh, but then, you know, I mean, with Pampero Fur, and even same thing with Bull Curry. Oh my God, Bull Curry, uh, what a monster heel here. But you know uh, what the Sheik did. He would tag team with these guys. He, you know, the Sheik and Bull Curry. Oh my God, who could ever beat those two? Sheik and Pampero Furple. Forget it. You know, they're 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 indestructible. But over time, you know, with these tag teams, you know, not every week after week, but every so often they would tag team, and then there'd be a falling out. Now you he switched Pampero Furple to a baby face and bull curry to a babyface. Who would ever have thought? And the people cheered them twice as much that they ever jeered them. You know, they became, you know, icons here. Uh, and that was the magic of big time wrestling here. So, and when he would always associate
0: himself with these other kind of vicious heels, like you were saying, and then sometimes there'd be a falling out. I'm also thinking like people like, like Killer Brooks that he, you know, would have as longtime partners and things like that. Do you think that. It, the fact that some of these heels would wind up turning, let's say, do you think it was more that the Sheik was so hated that people would go would, would, would root for anybody going against him because they hated him so much? Or do you think it was more that the Sheik was trying to protect his spot as being the number one bad guy? And, and so if you got too close to that spot, then he would make you a good guy so that, so that he would make sure that he stayed there.
1: Well, you answered your own question, you know, being the promoter, (laughs) the owner of the territory. Yeah. You want to stay on top and you want to, you know, make the most money and you don't want somebody overshadowing you. Uh, Not that he kept any of these guys down, but he did, you know, keep a thumb over them so that they wouldn't, you know, leapfrog him and take over the top spot. That's why not too many guys, you know, uh, Became United States heavyweight champion, you know. But, you know, we say that the sheik was the draw in Detroit. He was the drawing, you know, uh, talent. If the sheik wasn't on the card because he was either. You know, I'll mention a few times that he wasn't on a Kobo show. The time that he had his appendix out or the times that he would be in Japan for a couple weeks or a month or be on a show in L.A. for Mike LaBelle. You know, the crowd suffered, you know, by maybe uh, a thousand, maybe two, three thousand. You just never knew, you know, uh, and and it all depended on the season. You know, I, I always say that, you know from, oh, May, June, July, August, you know, forget it, you know, crowds are going to be down because there's baseball, and, you know, people are outside, and, you know, the days are longer, and you don't want to go down the Kobo, and, you know, be in an arena, you know, during the great summertime, you know, people want to do stuff outside, and there was other things to do, and concerts, and, you know, like I said, you know, Tiger baseball games. Uh, But in the winter, yeah, you know, you're closed up, you want to get out, you know, the crowds just, you know, doubled. And, uh, you know, over time, you know, the seven straight sellouts at Kobo with the sheet, uh, you know, it was just a magical time.
0: And I want to mention, too, for people that may not be totally familiar with with the territory or you know because there's also not a lot of footage that's out there it, it's a very small amount and of course the company went under even years before the WWF came into town but for for people interested like like Dave and I were talking about the these stacked cards if you look at late 60s early 70s and I'm saying this to people listening Go go look up those shows from Kobo Arena in that era. And, and you really will not believe the, the level of talent that was there and the amount. I would put it up against anything, including Madison Square Garden, because everybody always talks about the garden. And, and of course, the garden is the garden. But in terms of the star power and the sheer number of of matches that could draw people in, I don't think in that particular era, late 60s, early 70s, that anything could top what was happening at Kobo.
1: Uh, if people, you know, I'll mention this and it's not tooting, you know, mine or our own horn here, but if people want to really learn about the territory and the guys that worked it, uh, they should go to YouTube and look up rocks TV. That's R O X TV and look up big time memories. Uh, Terry Sullivan and myself, you know, we're reliving all our, you know, history of both of us, you know. Who worked for big time wrestling and were on the inside and knew all these guys, and we feature, you know, like The Sheik and Bobo Brazil and Pampero Furpo, Johnny Valentine, all the greats who appeared there. We do episodes and we tell their life story, you know, not only here, but their life story. Plus, we interject, you know, personal stories with these guys. Uh, you know, I—that's the greatest way for people to learn about the Detroit territory these days.
0: Yeah, and I was going to get to that because it really is a great show, and I've been following it closely. What you guys are doing, and—and and, and it is a perfect—it's it, a combination of you know, if you lived through it, it's great nostalgia to relive it. As you can clearly tell, you guys are having a ball. You know, you—you you and Terry Sullivan. Who was the longtime, big-time wrestling announcer? You guys are having so much fun, but also, even for the people that didn't live through it, it's just so informative and and candid and really well done. And 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 like, it's a combination of, of the history, and also, like you said, the, the personal recollections, the personal stories that you're not going to get anywhere else. And and you guys, and I want to mention too that the last one you put out there was for me personally because I just love. This kind of stuff, just learning about the behind the scenes stuff. The latest one you did, um, at least as of this recording that we're doing, was covering the, the end of big time wrestling and kind of the downfall of big time wrestling and the many kind of reasons for that and the factors that went into it that people have debated for years. You know, I talk about it in the book. Because like I was saying, it wasn't Vince McMahon that was responsible. I mean, he's got a lot, a lot of blood on his hands for other wrestling companies, but, but not, not big time wrestling. I mean, they were long gone by the time that, that the WWF came into town. And you guys did a really good job of, of really delving into that from the point of view of people that were close to it and new people who were close to it as well.
1: Yeah, there was so many mistruths, misconceptions, and everything about, you know, why big-time wrestling, you know, folded, you know, that, you know, that's been debated and put out on the internet and social media throughout the years, and it's like, you know, sometimes it just drives you crazy that, you know, and, you know, just the way social media is these days that you'll, you know, try to interject and correct somebody. And then, you know, if you do, well, you're a jerk, you an idiot, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. And it's like, well, I guess not. I was there and, you know, we know what happened and you're trying to make up this falsehood, but, you know, and putting it out there and how many people now that read it are believing it. And then the word spread, spread, spreads. And it's like, you know, this you know, falsehood is now almost like, you know, a Bible to so many people. And when you try to correct them, you know, which is what we tried to do in that particular show is try to give you all the history and what really happened year by year by year, you know, what caused the downfall of big time wrestling and the, you know, territory folding.
0: I think the problem is, and this goes for, story all stories of wrestling history you know especially pre you know before let's say before the mid 80s and 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 really like the high level of scrutiny and coverage of, of the wrestling business on a national level so many of these stories are just so murky and 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 when when falsehoods and and kind of half truths and things get repeated enough times people just assume that they're true and they just become Part of the legend, you know, and especially with a company like this, where the Sheik, I mean, people didn't even know that the Sheik was the one in charge at the time. I mean, the average fan didn't know, and he never gave a public interview in his entire life. So so putting the pieces together can be really, really challenging. You know, it's a complicated story.
1: Yeah, we had a lot of fun putting that uh, episode together. And, you know, if people are interested, you know, like I said, you know, go to Rocks TV, Big Time Memories, and look at all the, you know, other shows that we did. And you can, you know, uh, watch the show on the fall of Big Time Wrestling and learn the absolute truth on what happened. Uh, Also, if you know, here, I'm going to give you an exclusive. Uh, Terry Sullivan and I and the you know, film crew of Rocks TV, we recently uh, went to Williamston, Michigan. And we went and we had exclusive access to the Sheik's mansion that he built in the late 70s. And we filmed there and we went through all the rooms and me and Terry are telling you know, tales and stories you know, throughout the house. Then we went to his original old house on Grand River. Uh, and then we went, you know, to the office, the big time wrestling office, which is now a bakery, I believe it is. Or no, that it used to be a bakery a couple of years ago when I first went there. Now it's some kind of consignment shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we went across the street to our old studio, which we weren't able to get in. It's just a garage door and they built a um you know, used to be an open field years ago, but now it's a drugstore. So, you know, uh, we shot outside there and then we went to the Sheik's grave and shot film there. So that will be an episode uh, on Big Time Memories if anybody wants to see really the history of the Sheik and his hometown.
0: That's fantastic. I'm looking forward to that myself. And actually, I, I mentioned it to you. I'm looking forward to... And I'll be talking more about this. As it gets closer to the book coming out in April, I really want to come out there because with the pandemic and everything, it's been it, it's really put a crimp in a lot of my plans <laughs> and everybody else's plans. But uh, I want to get out there and really see some of these sites and get close to them and stuff. And I, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that, I have to say.
1: Well, for your people listening to your podcast, let me give them. A little insight on my personal feelings on your book that you wrote about the Sheik's life story. Um, it's an um, it's an amazing book. Um, you were kind enough to let me proofread it, add stuff, delete stuff, correct stuff. Uh, you know, and reading through these sixteen chapters, uh, I was beyond impressed with the, you know, uh, the digging and the, you know, what you did to bring the Sheik story alive. Uh, I mean, talking about his youth and, you know, his family and, you know, his wrestling career and just everything about that book. I mean, go to uh, where is it available at Amazon, you know, get your copy now. Uh, I'm telling you, this is going to be one of the most uh, sought after biggest selling, I hope for you, Um, books written about any particular wrestler in history.
0: Well, I just want everybody to know that I did not pay Dave to say those things. No money changed hands. But I I am very grateful in in all seriousness and really humbled by that. And we've spoken about this privately, too, because, you know, coming from someone like you, that really carries a lot of weight to me. And that means a lot because I knew from when I first started this project two years ago that I was never going to be able to get it done, at least not the right way without being able to consult with you and talk to you. I, I just knew from the beginning. And I remember even from the first time we talked, I, I knew that I had to kind of win over your trust and win you over, that I wasn't just some kind of like half baked, you know, moron that was just kind of like just some some weird crazy mark that was trying to do this thing, that I really was serious about it. And I'm glad that that I did that, you know, that I really did that because your input, your involvement in this thing, really helped to to make it shine, you know, because we're talking about an era. We're talking about a person in wrestling history, as important as he was, that is now, especially if you're talking about his prime, you're looking at 40, 50 years ago. You know, you're looking at stuff that in, in a wrestling business where history is never really placed at a premium, it might as well be much, much longer ago than that. And so to put this story together, it was something that was really important to me and to have somebody there involved with it, because there's not a lot of people that you can talk to like that. I wish I could have sat down with the Sheik and not that he would ever talk to me, but I wish I could have sat down with Bobo Brazil and, and people like that. And, you know, the mighty Igor and stuff that that would be amazing. And, and you helped to give me a, a portal into that world in whatever way that it was possible. So I thank you for that.
1: Well, and you didn't get any help from the family either. You know, there was nobody well, from the family who yeah. was willing to talk to you about this book, thinking that you're some kind of jabroni who was really going to, you know, uh, you know, do a f- basically a fiction novel about the life of the sheik and they couldn't have been more wrong.
0: You know, it's it's a it's an unfortunate thing. I I would have loved to have had. Of course I would have loved to have had. The family involved. And it, it, it's too bad that, you know, as a lot of people know, both of the Sheik's sons, Eddie Jr. and Tommy, both tragically passed away within the past year during the time that I was writing this book. In fact, Eddie Jr. passed away on the day that I finished writing the manuscript, which is which is totally insane. But you know, I had been communicating with them, as I said to you a few at f- a few points. And and, you know, they were famously reticent and famously hesitant to be involved in a a project like this. And for a lot of reasons. And they were very skeptical, especially talking about Eddie Jr. And I had really hoped to be able to convince them. And and I felt that Eddie was coming around. I, I mean that I really do. And I have I have the emails to prove it. He was coming around. And then unfortunately, you know, Tommy got sick and he passed. And understandably, Eddie was really unconsolable and really didn't want to talk much after that and then he passed you know he he got covid of all things which which was really terrible because i remember him publicly talking about you know very much talking about how how important it was during the lockdown for people to follow you know precautions with covid and and he was somebody that was really kind of like um, immunocompromised and vulnerable and he wound up wound up catching it and dying from it but It it, it's it's one of my regrets. And I put it in the beginning of the book, even in the dedication of the book. They're both mentioned in the sense that I really, truly mean it. I wish that they could have seen this book. And I'm not saying I'm not putting myself over that. I wrote the greatest book ever. You know, Dave, you already put me over. But just in the sense of to see it and know that I was serious about it and that I was not trying to bury anybody. Yes, it's an honest book but I am out to preserve the legacy of the Sheik, and I'm not, it's not a smear job. And I really had the utmost respect for their dad. And, you know, I, I just wish they could have known that, but um, I could, I could talk about Detroit wrestling with you forever. And we have to, I want to, I, I didn't even get to even some of the things I would want to talk to you about. So I'm definitely going to want to have you back at some point to, to talk more about this stuff um and and get into even more incredible stories of of big-time wrestling and even beyond big-time wrestling just almost like your adventures in the business Uh, you know I almost feel like one of these days you need to write a book Dave and I could probably help you do that but you should do it
1: well so many people have said you know to you know that I should I've asked Scott Teal and you know He's trying to get out of that kind of stuff now. Greg yeah. Oliver, he won't take on that project. You know, you if you wanted to, you know, you know. But, you know, the thing that, you know, I say to so many people who, you know, say you should do a book. Well, it's a two to three year commitment. You know, it's not like, you know, uh, you sit down and you interview or, or you write yourself you know over you know a couple of weeks a month a couple months no this is a commitment of two three you know even more years of writing a book you know so you know I've got a lot of tales to tell you know, I tell them on podcasts I you know tell them on the big time memory show I you know do it on social media uh the, you know I personally don't think I have, a, you know, a, a history of, you know, what people want to read about. I'm no Ric Flair. I'm no Dusty Rhodes. But, you know, uh, I have a passion for wrestling. Uh, I've been around it. You know, I've been around some great things that happened. And, you know, through like your podcast, I hope people enjoy what I had to say today and that they would welcome me back one day.
0: I think that people would, and I think even just listening to what we've talked about today, you know, people can hear that you've had some interesting experiences in the business, I would say. So it's something to think about, but um, this has been, this has really been a pleasure. I have to say it's, it's been great to to kind of reminisce about this stuff with you for the people that remember it or just the people that want to learn more about it. It, it, it's great stuff. So I would I would advise people to check out Big Time Memories, especially because it's it's sort of like um, history one hundred and one for Detroit wrestling. It's a great thing that people should should seek out. And I also want to thank you, Dave, for taking time out to do this and to for living up to your to your moniker today of the Super Mouth. <laughs> thank you for being so free with your time and with your stories. And I'm all, you know, I, I, I got through a couple of glasses of the Pinot Noir. So I think that that, that made it even more enjoyable. So thank oh, you. Oh,
1: darn, I'm, I'm still <laughs> on my first glass. I, I must have really been talking super mouth. God, I should be on my second glass, too.
0: Well, I'm going to I'm going to let you go then so that you could get on that and just continue, you know, imbibing for the evening.
1: I thank you for having me on Uh, much appreciated it's always good talking, you know, stories to a friend that I can relate to as opposed to an interviewer who, you know, would, you know, probably, you know, not do and bring out things of me like you just did. Uh, you're a good friend. You know, I like I say, you know, people buy his, you know, book that's coming out, you know, uh, go to big time memories, uh, leave a comment about this podcast. And like I said, if you want me back, I'm here for you, brother.
0: Great. That's all I wanted this to be. Like you said, I, this podcast is really about friends talking about old school wrestling. That's really what it is all meant to be. And I think we lived up to it with this. So thank you, Dave.
1: Quite welcome. Cheers.
0: All right. You too. Take care. Well, there you have it, folks. The great Dave Brzezinski, AKA Supermouth Dave Drayson. Um, I can, as you can hear, uh, as you heard just there, I can talk about Detroit wrestling and I can talk about the chic forever. So that was a fascinating conversation for me to have. I hope you found it fascinating as well. And I hope you're going to keep listening because we've got more great stuff coming up Uh, next week's guest is going to be somebody who's done it all in the wrestling business. He's, he's, he's worn so many hats and, and um, we're going to talk about some of those experiences. And I'm talking about Les Thatcher, Les Thatcher going to be the next guest. We've got other people lined up like um, uh, Dave dynasty. And we've also got Jeff Walton from the world of Los Angeles wrestling and Mike LaBelle lined up. So those are going to be really interesting. Um, there's plenty of ways that you can find shut up and wrestle. I'm not sure where you're finding it, but obviously our main website is suawpod.com. You can also find it on Google podcasts, Spotify, Apple podcasts, Podbean, wherever you find the podcast that you listen to. Um, and of course we're part of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network, and you can find those other podcasts there as well. As for me, you can find me on social media. Of course, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Brian R. Solomon. You can find me there. On Facebook, uh, my wrestling- related page is Pro Wrestling FAQ. So if you look for that, you'll find me on there. You will also find links to my author webpage. On those social media sites. Also, want to mention that I am the co host of the PWI podcast with Al Castle. So, you might want to check that podcast out as well. And of course, you can get Pro Wrestling Illustrated at getpwi.com or your local newsstands. You can also find the other magazine I write for, Inside the Ropes, at inside That is the place to find it. Uh, so, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, of course. This has been Brian Solomon, and once again, I am asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you to keep your feet on the ground, but keep reaching for the stars. So long, wrestling fans.